Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello friends and listeners and welcome to this very special episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, October 16 of 2021. My name is Rudolf and for those of you who are on YouTube, you will realize that you can see me. Yes. And why is this? This is season 7, episode 8. But beyond that, this is the 100th episode of the Post Hermes podcast. And this is why I thought, well, why not do a special thing for here today? Not only have, of course, a very special guest with Philip Carr Gum, former chosen chief. Um, I was hesitating a bit when I did the interview, giving the right title. His title was chosen chief of the order of Bards, Ovates and Druids, but also a very, very nice gentleman. But it's not only that the speciality that I have a very nice and special guest, but today, as it is the 100th episode, I thought, well, I'll tape it on video this time. Much, much more work, you know, I won't do that often, um, but uh, I thought it would be a nice treat. Of course, those of you who listen on the usual podcast channels, this is just an ordinary episode like always. But, well, if you want, if you have time, why not for this time pop over to YouTube and have a look at it. Of course, you don't only see me here in the intro, but you will also see the interview this time, Philip Cargom and myself having our discussion. So I hope you'll enjoy that very special episode. Those of you who are here for the first time, well, say happy anniversary to us or happy jubilee or whatever you want to call it and come back often and those of you who have been with me for a long time maybe not all the hundred episodes but many of them thank you for that and for thank you for being with me and because today it's the 100th episode i won't ask you to become a patron okay thank you and thanks for those who already are patrons it is on patreon or on the website website is thoughtshermes.com and you can go there not only subscribe as a supporter but just listen to all the 100 episodes well actually 98 of them two of them i have pulled back because they were just outdated that happens sometimes even in occultism right well You'll see, maybe there will be some little things technically in this show because I'm, of course, not used to do a whole podcast on video. I do video on other stuff from time to time, so I shouldn't be too bad. But, um, well, my pleasure is always to do the audio, and but uh, I think it'll be good anyway. Right, so without much further ado, of course, also in this show, as always, there is some music. The only thing that's different maybe here today is that I won't come in and talk to you in the middle of the interview because we have music, three times music here, which is absolutely a 
perfect fit for the interview with Philip Cargom. It will be Bard. Bard, who is also one of the leading members of the order of Bards, Ovids and Druids and a very well-known musician in the scene, in the scene of not only Druidry but paganism in general and the occult also in general. I think many of you know him. He has already been here on this show with his music before and um, also with a short interview at some point in one of the early episodes and I have asked him if he'd agree that we use his music for this 100th episode with his former chief so to say um, Philip Cargom and he happily agreed thank you them for that yeah well okay so we have three pieces by them the bard here today we go in order of time I think um, because uh, it's three um, pieces of music by them the bard that have come from three different periods over the last 15 to 20 years since he's been doing music and this first piece of music I have to look it up you know I'm used to doing radio and not video so I have to look it up the title the title of that first piece is Tomb of the King Tomb of the King from uh, early um, an early um, recording an early uh, uh, cauldron, the cauldron born. It was called one of the first CDs that Dan the Bard had recorded, and we are listening to that now. There is no video to that; just the cover of the CD, of course. The cauldron born is the name of the CD. The singer is Dan the Bard, and the title is Tomb of the King. Enjoy.
the bard from his cd release one of the very first the cauldron born well as i said philip cargom is today's guest on the show and i'm not going to do long moderations here this time because they're in video you don't want to see me all the time you want to hear the video today so that's why the intro is a bit shorter and i won't read from his text or his book either we have a nice interview of 66 minutes and i think you'll get to know philip rather well that way as usual in the middle of the interview there will be our break a musical break and damn the bar to you just listened to will be back and in the middle there will be his newest his latest release and that is called uh, under the trees and then it's a it's a single release he did very recently so brand new under the trees by damn the bart in the middle of the interview and 
after the interview, our third piece, the third piece is called The Wicker Man, and this is from his release for his CD, Sabbath, which appeared, I believe, about three to four years ago. So, but now we're going to join in London uh, Philip Cargom in his uh, office. You'll see him and me there talking to each other. Well, mostly him, be relieved. It'll be I really think a very nice talk and I can only tell you now, enjoy, have fun with the video release, the hundredth episode of the Sauce Hermes podcast. Here comes the interview. And for this hundredth episode of the Thoughts Hermit podcast, as I just told you in the intro to the show, I have a very special guest here today, and it's a great pleasure to have you with me here today, Philip Carcom, um, former um, Cho uh, chosen leader, I think the title is, of the Order of Bart Reeds and Ovids, and um, just a, a very, very nice gentleman, and I'm very happy to have you here, Philip uh, how do you do? Very nice to have you on the show here today. Hello. Th thank you, Rudolf. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Um, well, Philip, um, as I just said, 33 years of a very important uh, position that you had came to an end a year ago. Uh, it's certainly not yet time to make a resume. That comes later in 10 or 20 years. But um, still, I think it may be an interesting moment in life to, to look a bit back also how it all started. Because I gather, um, of course, the order itself was not the starting point for your personal spirituality. That came a bit later, maybe, I don't know. Um, so where, when did it all start for you? When did you discover that something else was in the world that would be of an interest to you? Yeah, well, um, you know, when you, you, you have a memory that is so old, you don't know whether it's a real memory or whether you remember it from what somebody told you, you know. So, so I have a, a strong memory of being about four years old uh, and seeing a woman dressed in blue walking through our sitting room, coming just coming through, and and I asked my parents who this woman was, and they said, "There's no woman here," and. Um, okay. Then they started laughing and I got upset. So whether whether that's a real memory or whether they, of course, it became a family story, you know, uh, So or whether I'm just have constructed it, I don't know. Uh, but uh, um, really the most of my childhood, I can't really remember very much. It, uh, and it was when I was, but it was when I was 11 that I feel as if I woke up. I, I read a book called The Life of the Buddha by L. Adams Beck, which was a very ly lyrical book. Um, and my impression on reading it was this is the only thing worth pursuing in life, this search for enlightenment. There's, everything pales in comparison to this, this noble search. And uh, my father knew a lot of people in the spiritual world. He ran a magazine a history magazine, 
And so he knew people who were Rosicrucians and Buddhists. He knew Christmas Humphreys who had started the Buddhist Society in London. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and he knew uh, the old chief druid who was called Ross Nichols. And he was an old friend of his. And he, he, Ross Nichols was also a historian. And um, he was frequently in our house. Uh, and I met him for the first time when I was 11. And um, and and I became interested in this, and but then really from about fifteen onwards, sixteen, I uh, became I became very interested in photography, and I had a dark room, and I loved this magical process of images arising out of nothing, and you know, and um, and the old chief druid asked me to photograph the ceremonies uh, that he was conducting. And so I went along to them, some were inside in the winter, some were outside and up on the hillside in London. And um, I would then go from school, I would go to visit him with the contact sheets, you know, the little things. And he'd say, I'll have three of these and five of those and so on. And this was the kind of excuse, I think, to bring us together. And uh, <laughs> But in reality, you know, I started talking to him about the spiritual life. And then when I was about 16, I asked him if I could train to be a Druid and to join the order, and uh, the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. And, and he said I had to study first. And so I studied for two years. And then when I was 18, I was initiated on uh, Glastonbury Tour. Um, so that's how, how, how I started in this. So in a way, excuse, excuse the stupid comparison, but you were thrown into the into the magical uh, drink right away like, <laughs> at a very young age because you had that. Not only that, you seem to have had those experiences. I find that with the blue lady personally very interesting, and also how you put it that you never know if it's memory or something that was built later. But uh, I know the feeling for other things. Yeah, but so it was part of your life from the very beginning somehow, right? Hmm. Um, and how did that influence your life in general uh, at early start? I mean, uh, it's very different from other stories when people maybe at 25, 30 start looking around. Yeah, well, I suppose it was this constant theme. So when I was at school, I used to find the lessons very boring. Mm. I went to a very smart, I went to Westminster School, which is by Westminster Abbey in the center of London. So every morning I had to go into Westminster Abbey to to be in the church service every morning. And, um, and I always remember very consciously taking in the beauty of the stained glass windows and the uh, you know, the surroundings and trying to open myself to, to the spiritual world. And I found the actual, most of the actual teaching very boring. And so I would, I was really focused on learning about spirituality. So I was reading a lot in, I suppose, Western mysticism and, uh, I would give the minimum attention to schoolwork and the sort of maximum attention to 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 to, to studying uh, different spiritual traditions because I was interested in Buddhism as well and um, theosophy. So I was kind of reading books on theosophy and Buddhism, and uh, there was very little published on Druidry, but I was reading the teaching material that my Druid teacher was giving me, um, and and 
and then and then the change came fairly fairly quickly because this was just a, a couple of years maybe even 18 months you know 16 to sort of 17 and a half and then and then the whole flower power hit london uh and in a wave yeah, yeah. and you know everybody was smoking pot and taking psychedelics and so on um so I started to do that along with all my friends and girlfriends and so on. Um, and and that became rather interesting because all my friends weren't interested. I mean, they were interested in some ways in Buddhism because Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, you know, were talking about that sure, with the sure. Tibetan Book of the Dead and all the rest of it. Um, but all the, the Druidism, for instance, was they just thought was crazy. So So I would spend one evening you know, sitting around with friends in altered states of consciousness and then another <laughs> evening in a druid ceremony, uh, you know, uh, with, with a group of elderly elderly people, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so, that, so that, that was... That, 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 that's <laughs> interesting. You're mentioning theosophy as well because um, uh, I think it, if I get it right from what I read about you and, and know about you, that was a rather important influence on your on your thought theosophy or or did i get that wrong yeah no well i think what it introduced me to was the concept of universalism and so um the type of druidry that has always interested me and which the order of bards of eights and druids represents is a kind of universalist druidry as opposed to a very particularly celtic druidry or a reconstructionist kind of druidry, uh, much more open and much more interested in the links with other spiritual traditions and the similarities and so on. Maybe we should talk about about the order now a little bit and about druidry as you conceive it in general, because my audience here, of course, they are all interested and specialized in different types of uh, spirituality in the western tradition but druidry is a very particular part of it which i believe not many especially outside of the uk are very well aware of can you maybe also this explanation of the three threefold order like bards ovids and druids is three steps in a way yeah yeah absolutely i mean the 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 the, the the interesting thing about druidry is it is it it brings together a kind of occult or and magical understanding and way of working with a mystical uh religious devotional nature kind of mysticism in a in a particular combination which which I think works very well and and there are sort of three streams or schools that combine, and one is the, the the bardic stream, which is which you what you train in first, which revolves all around ideas of um, story, and art and poetry. So it's looking at well, one of the things I suppose I introduced when I when I took over as running the order, I with my training in psychology and psychotherapy, I introduced. Um, all this very rich vein of looking at your own story, your personal story, uh, you know what's called sometimes narrative psychology or something like that. Um, working with your own story, and then and then also working with the story uh, of your culture and of your land and of the, you know the old Celtic stories and the um, folklore 
and so on. So so, uh, and then so there's that and the uh, pr- the huge appreciation of poetry, which has always been uh, an interest for me. The way poetry can evoke feelings and states of consciousness that that merely prose can't quite reach. Um, so an appreciation of, of poetry and art in general, and song, and uh, and then moving into the ovate stream, which is the more familiar world, I suppose, for the magician or the occultist, which is the uh, looking at that hidden law and the uh, the power that's contained in plants. And you know animals and the stars and the stones. So here the subjects of divination and of oracles come into play. Is it the very animistic part of 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 the order, or yeah, 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 yeah the animistic yeah. side of things, and um, mm-hmm. and of sort of somehow coming to explore the what you might call the plastic nature of time. Plastic, not in the chemical sense, but in the um, the fluid, the fluid nature of time, in that sense, um, yeah. and then finally the druid school or stream, which is around the more philosophical, uh, religious, if you like, ceremonial aspect. Um, and would you see this as a as like great systems, or you go from one to the next upwards, or is it just three schools in parallel, which at some point you have to integrate to become a whole? Well, that's a good point. Yes, it's very easy to see it as a hierarchy, um, and 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 I suppose because because they're sequenced, the way we teach it is sequenced. It's very hard not to see it as a hierarchy. But really, I, I like to see it as sort of um, going in, um, like the rings of a tree or something, going in closer, um, and and then having having explored those three schools over a number of years. It's then quite natural to feel more at home in one than the other. You know, you might come back to the Bardic school because that's your world of story and poetry and so on, or or the Ovate because your world is working with plants and oracles and so on. So, but it's very integrative, holistic, uh, not only universal, but also a holistic worldview, isn't it? Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. And, and, and those three streams, of course, are completely sort of woven together because in a way it's an artificial way of separating them but it just helps you know to 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 study and work with it if you if you separate them you know yeah well let's go back from the order to the man philip gargom uh, um do you so you started being a part of it through the people you met through the leader of the order that you met at a very early age. And um, I like the image, by the way, you said about making photographs. Young people nowadays, they have forgotten how much photography, what magical part is there in photography when the photo appears out of nothing. But <laughs> that said apart, uh, that said apart, how, how then were you attracted so much? What happened that you came from being a an early member, a young member, so to speak, to part of the organization. What did that mean also for you? Yeah. Well, what what happened is so so I I I, I um I can't remember how many years I I studied with with Ross Nichols, uh, but at a certain point I met 
a very charismatic man, a guru, who um, was living in Paris, who had an ashram in Paris, and his name was Omram Mikhail Ivanov, and he ran this. Ivanov, yes, sure. And and the difference, the thing with my Druid teacher is that he wasn't charismatic. He was like like a school teacher. He was like, he was like, he was very ordinary in that sense. And... um, uh, then, then I, I came across in the Watkins bookshop, which is a little sort of spiritual bookshop in London. We came across this. My wife and I came across this little pamphlet about uh, the, the Fraternité Blanche Universelle, uh, and uh, the, yeah, and uh, and we we she she my wife was French. My first wife was French, and she said, "Ah, oh, we must contact this man. This is extraordinary." And we, he invited us to his ashram in Paris. And he was very different. He was incredibly charismatic and he looked like Father Christmas. And he, um, and we, we went through a process that many people, I think, have, have been through of, of essentially falling in love. You know, you fall in love with this guru character who, uh, yeah. and, and, uh, we we spent the next seven years with him. We started his publishing company in England. We arranged for translations of his books. We became very close to him. He would invite us to his sort of private ashram in the Pyrenees. And, um, and then it started to go wrong. Uh, one, one day after about seven years, it was, it was as if some sort of spell had been cast over us and the and and the scales dropped from our eyes at that time he was in america trying to sort of spread his teachings into america and he'd given us his private apartment in in paris and i knew and i was listening to his recordings so we were also hundreds of people listening and meditating to his audio recordings and sometimes films and he was becoming more and more obsessed with himself. I mean, you know, it was as if he was going a little, he was, you know, he was getting old by that time and he was becoming more and more obsessed with himself. So it was becoming more egoic in a strange way. And, and it felt wrong. And I, I turned to my wife at some point and said, I think we should leave. This doesn't feel healthy anymore. Something has happened and it's not healthy. And she agreed. And we drove back through the snow in Paris one day, uh, back to London. Uh, may I ask you something? Uh, um, sorry, I, I have, we have a little delay. That's why I cut you off sometimes. I'm sorry about that. Uh, um, um, but um, do you think that the guru relationship in general might be open to that danger more than other ways of spiritual teaching? That, that the guru at some point, for whatever reason, could have that egoic problem at some point? Or is that maybe a preconceived idea I have? Do you know, um, originally, I was, uh, after this experience, I was very much against the idea of gurus for a long time mm-hmm. because of this experience. I've My feelings, opinions have sort of softened since then. Um, I think that my experience was that it's a very it's a very interesting process uh, just as falling in love is very interesting you know and it's it's sort of it, it it makes you a bit crazy as falling in love does 
uh, you lose your perspective and you you obsess about the person. You think about them a lot, uh, and you you know you close your eyes and you imagine you're in their presence. And this makes you high. I mean, you're, you're, you know, I don't know, endorphins or something are being secreted in your brain. Um, and so I had the most wonderful meditations with him. I mean, I used to get very, very high when I meditated with my guru uh, in a way that in some ways I haven't been able to, you know, I mean, I think when you have these peak experiences, it's a bit like a psychedelic experience. You know, it's very hard to have a similar experience. If you're not taking psychedelics, it's very hard to have this experience uh, of altered states of consciousness with a guru if you're not following a guru. Um, so I'm glad that I did it, but I think uh, it is immensely problematic and um, needs to be, you know, you need to proceed with caution if you're going to follow a guru. I think that's... yeah. Certainly, certainly. But I interrupted your path when you said that was part of the path which led you probably back to the order and then deeper into it. Yes, because I think the one really good thing about following the guru and then f falling out of love, as it were, and getting a divorce, as I put it, uh, was, um, was when I was asked to be leader of the order, I was very aware of the problem of projection. You know, Carl Jung was once asked uh, if there was one thing we could do to make the world a better place, what would it be? And his reply was, withdraw your projections. And until you've had an experience of what it means to project and then suffer the consequences of that, that answer of Jung's doesn't sound particularly significant. But when you've experienced it in its sort of fullness, you realize what, a, what an important statement that is. So one of the reasons why I, I, I felt I was able to do the job of running the order is because I tried as much as I could not to uh, encourage people to project onto me. I mean, of course, it happens anyway because you can't help it sometimes. But um, so some of the traps, I think, I, I, I tried to very deliberately avoid uh, in running the order. But um, it, the, the title is called the, the, the Chosen Chief, right? That's the, the title of the head of the order. So, that choice, yes, exactly. How does that happen? How how are you chosen? How does it's not elected visibly; it's chosen. So how how do we have to understand that? Okay, okay. Well, this is this is such a strange story that uh, uh, sometimes I don't tell it because it seems sort of unbelievable. But it's it's just what happened when mm -hmm. Ross Nichols was running the order. The order was tiny; there were about ten people in it. And they all seem very old. That tiny, oh, really? Yeah, it was tiny. That you know, tiny. 10, 12 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They all seem fantastically old. They were probably my age. You know, they were probably in their <laughs> 60s and 70s. I don't know. But yeah, you're not fantastically old. You're just three years older than me. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, when he died, 
the order died with him. It it uh, the 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 man who was supposed to carry on couldn't do it. He disbanded it, and he uh, and then he died a few years later himself. I at that time uh, had just got married. I had a young son. Uh, I was incredibly busy. I was doing a degree in. I, I had had this experience with following the guru. At the as I came out of the guru experience, I, I understood that I needed to study psychology. I had always wanted to study psychology and train as a psychoanalyst, but I was putting it off all the time. But I, I, I found the whole experience of following a guru and then falling out of love with a guru so interesting and strange and painful in many ways um, that I decided, you know, now I need to get hard-nosed, as they say, and, and study. So I took a degree. I was in my uh, late 20s and uh, or even early 30s, I can't remember. And I took a degree in psychology in London, a science degree in it. And I started having psychoanalysis, a Jungian analysis at the same time with a view to becoming a Jungian analyst. And um, so a lot was happening in my life. And after nine years after Ross Nichols died, so he died in 1975, and so this was in 1984, nine years. So the order didn't exist anymore. He had died. I didn't think about him, to tell you the truth, that much anymore. You know, my life was so full. And one morning, I, I had a habit then of before I went into uh, town to go to the university, I would sit in in sort of zazen, which is just sitting, emptying your mind, just just being empty, just sitting for 20 minutes or so, just peacefully being. And suddenly he was in the room with me. And um, he said a lot of things to me, uh, which were... And when I say suddenly he was in the room, I mean, I don't mean that in the sense of I saw him magically in front of me. Yeah. But it's as if, yeah. you know, you know when, you know, if you were sitting in your sitting room with your eyes closed and, and somebody came in and stood behind you, you'd know they were there. You know, it was like, boom, this presence was there. The presence. You yeah. feel the presence. He was there and I knew it was him immediately. And then he proceeded to ask me to do things and told me things. Uh, you know, he said, you must get all the books that I, that I had published. You must gather the teachings and I want you to lead the order and to start it again because it is not an anachronism. You might think that it's an anachronism, Druidry, in the 20th century, but it's not. It's very relevant to the crisis that humanity is facing. And I would like you, when you were young, you used to learn by coming to physically visit me. I used to go every week to his house and he would teach me. He said, you should put uh, all these teachings in the form of a course that you can send out to people. So geography is not a problem anymore. Distance isn't a problem. So I came out of this experience astonished. I knew as well, because I was sufficiently far into my psychoanalysis and my psychology training, that the mind can trick you in all sorts of ways, that this could have been wishful thinking. I could have been, my unconscious could have been generating this material. But um, the next day, I was in an office I had in the centre of London, in my lunch hour, I went into a, a secondhand bookshop and I said, just, just the nearest one by my office. 
And I said, would you by any chance happen to have any books privately published during the war by Ross Nichols, uh, you know, and, uh, and the guy said, that's extremely unlikely, but I'll have a look for you. He went downstairs and he came back with a little packet and it was a book by Ross Nichols with letters from him and drawings tied up in string. And he gave it to me and he said, you can have this. And so I un you can imagine, I took this package back to the office and I undid the string and there were letters from this man who had died nine years previously and had just spoken to me that morning. And, and there were these letters from him. So from there, I walked across to the Atlantis bookshop, which was an occult bookshop by the British Museum. Famous, famous. Still, it still is an occult bookshop, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I walked into the shop and immediately I saw a twin volume edition of a book on the history and practice of magic that was privately published by Ross Nichols in 1952. And I just walked straight up to it, lifted it out and bought it. And that evening I ran a friend, rang a friend who's called Colin Murray, uh, who published the Celtic Tree Oracle with his wife, Liz. And I, I rang up and I said, can I come and see you? I've just had the most extraordinary experience. He said, yeah, sure, come over. So I went around to see him and I told him the story. And I said, now already I only have one book of his missing that I don't have. And then I have the, he's, he asked me to get all his books. And now I have, and, and Colin said, ah, I have two copies of that. I'll give you mine. And he gave me the book. <laughs> So on day one, I I ticked off his, uh, his the, the, and then the second thing he asked me to do was to have his book. He'd spent the last few years of his life writing a book about Druidry, and he had left a thousand pounds in his will for it to be published, and it was never published. It was ignored. That request was ignored. So I managed to track down the manuscript, and then I managed to get it published, and so on. So these series of synchronistic events occurred. Um, but I was still reluctant to take the steps. I spent, say, so he said, put all my teachings in the form of, you know, a course that can reach people. So I spent four years from 1984 to 1988 putting all this material in, in some sort of format that would reach people. But I, but I, I didn't do anything else. I was reluctant to take any kind of step to, to, you know, do anything. Because he he had said, I want you to lead the order again, but but don't worry about this. You know, it will become clear to you. So what happened after those four years is my whole life collapsed. My marriage of of uh, seventeen years exploded. Um, the 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 way I earned my living was I had a sort of spiritual travel company, a travel company that uh, I, I sold because it was with my wife and she was now my ex-wife. So suddenly I was living, I used to live in a, in a house that was like the, the German ambassadors to, to London's house in Kew Gardens. It was this palace, wow. you know, and, uh, and uh, I was now living in a wooden shack on an mm. island in the Thames that I paid 17, 70 pounds a week to a man uh, in cash. It's apparently the same house that the, the great train robber hid in uh, after the train <laughs> robbery. Um, so it was a very strange place. And, and I was living in there. My life was finite. You know, I had, I had no money. I had, I was, it was just a disaster in every way. I was separated from my son, who I loved so much, and so on. 
and um, but uh, I met my first love again, who sewed my initiation robe for me for when I was eighteen, way back. We came to live together in Primrose Hill, which has a lovely Druid association. And the day we moved in, I got a telephone call from a member of the order from way back, you know, from when the order still existed, who said, a group of us want to see you. And they turned up at the flat and they knew nothing about all this stuff that had happened to me. They knew nothing about it because I hadn't told anybody that I had prepared all this material and that I'd had this intel. And they said, we would like to ask you to start the order again because you're the only person who can do it, because you have the education, you knew Ross Nichols, you trained with him and so on. Will you start the order again? And so at that point, I thought, well, I've been invited from the inner world. Now I'm being invited from the outer world, from physical people out there, and I'll accept it. But when I accepted it, I thought that this is such an obscure interest, such a minority interest, that maybe 10, 12 people would be interested in it. And I had absolutely no conception that over the next 30 years, we would have end up having 25,000 members and yeah. conferences all over the world and you know, all this stuff. I had no idea. I, I believe there is even a group here in Vienna, a small group uh, of the order that are active here in Vienna, as far as I know. Absolutely, absolutely. I did a I did a workshop <laughs> in Vienna in the Coaching Cafe. I don't know if you know it in Vienna. Uh, oh yeah, sure, sure, yeah. That's that's nice. No, it is it is an amazing story, and thank you for sharing it because um, you know, don't worry. On this show, don't, people won't take that as an obscure story. I think they they quite well understand what you mean with by that and what you say by that. Um, that's really really great story. Driving home at night In the company of a storm Endless taillights I'm sitting here alone Another day gone by where do they all go? It's getting harder to justify A life on death row I want to go where I can heal my soul Talk to the wisest people I I will go The soothing sound of forest leaves And all my troubles start to ease Forgive me please You will find me Under
I mean, Russ Nichols seemed to say something almost like that he was talking about sending things out by, by mail, etc. But of course, over those 30 years, that was just the beginning of the computer area in the late, late 1980s and the internet came and all that. Um, how did that help and how did you use it? And what in general do you believe can the internet do for the development of spirituality? I mean, there are dangers in it as well, but how would you use it to make it a positive use of it and you have proof that it is possible yeah absolutely i mean uh you know yes for the first um say from you know maybe the first 10 years i mean i'm, I'm not sure exactly how many years but say 10 years from 88 to 98 say um 
the majority of people came to the order through books. You know, I wrote a number of books mm -hmm. and uh, so on and gave lots of workshops and talks and so on. And people would come through that. And then as the internet came, I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember my son saying that he would set up email for me and I had to ask him what it was, you know. And I said, well, you can if you like. I, I can't imagine anybody uh, would would uh, use it. Um, and uh, of course, now here we are, I use it all the time. And um, then, then what happened was um, somebody offered to make a website and I did the same thing. I said, well, I don't think anybody will look at it, but go ahead, you know. And uh, at every stage of the game, I've been very late, you know, uh, when my colleague Dave the Bard offered to make a podcast, I had to, he had to explain to me what a podcast was because I didn't know what it was. And I said, well, I don't think anybody will listen to it. And now we have, it's been downloaded 2 million times or something, 25,000 people a month listen to it. It was actually one of the first podcasts I was listening to in that field and also that inspired me at some point. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah that's great. Absolutely. So I think, you know, so now we have our courses online. You know, what happened was the, the printed courses were translated into German and French and Dutch and Italian and, um, and, um, and French. And um, they're printed, but uh, we've started, you know, the English course is now available online. And of course, that gives you the opportunity to add films in as well. Mm -hmm. So we have audio, we have beautiful sort of songs and poetry and story and so on in in the in the audio version of the course that used to go out on CDs, but now it now it goes out online alongside films as well. That, no, it's it's an amazing site. I mean. People can find the link if they don't know it anyway. They can find the link on the show notes of this of this episode. So I invite everybody to go there and have a look. Also, of course, to Philip's own website. And we come into you and your other doings uh, in a few moments. But let's let's for a moment uh, still go back to the order. You mentioned that uh, Ross Nichols, uh, when he came to see you um, he would also mention that the order and the teachings of druidry would be needed to to face what humanity has to face and we now finally uh, 40 years later seem to slowly realize we as humanity i mean um uh, what is meant by that and how urgent all of that is now in what way do you think that druidry in particular but maybe western Let's limit it to Western spirituality because that's the subject here. Spirituality, as in general, uh, has a role to play in trying to to help. Uh, well, let's put it dramatically: humanity to survive. I mean, um, it comes to that point uh, uh, in a way. Um, what is the role of druidry and spirituality in general? Uh, in that, is there a kind of spiritual activism that is needed? Would you call it like that? Well, I'd love, I'd love to hear you expand a little bit on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it, and it, and I think you're right. It has. I know you hesitated when you said it. You know, has it come to this? And of course, it has. It's such a shocking statement to make, but I think it has. And um, you know, I'm. I, I've always had this interest in psychology and spirituality, and they've kind of run together in parallel. And just in the last year, since I've um, retired as chief of the order and handed the position on, uh, those two streams have have come together in a very beautiful way. And um, 
we, you know, we can only we can only do our bit. I think we we would all love to save the world and save all the species and you know solve all the problems. But the reality is, I think, is we just sure. have to work in the in the in the field and the area. So the particular field that interests me is mental health and the distortions in psychology in the psyche, the human psyche, that can allow the kind of behavior to occur that is destroying our planet are something I think are of great interest and need to be addressed. And um, what has become clear is that one of the reasons we have been destroying our habitat uh, has been because of a sense of disconnection, disconnection from nature, from our own deep selves, and so on. So I think one of the most important tasks is to reconnect people at, at every level possible. So, so you know, we re, you know the work of reconnecting people to their soul and their heart, so they can feel more and feel connected to other people more, so that they don't behave so badly. And and also to connect to the outside world. And you see, what's interesting with Druidry is that it's what you might call an embodied spirituality. So, and what I mean by that is spirituality can often be taken as a route to becoming disembodied. So you have ideas like ascensionism, where we're all going to disappear up into the clouds. Uh, you can have certain interpretations of Christianity and Buddhism and so on, which is, is about detaching from the world and so on. But nature yeah. spiritualities, Druidry, for instance, are about saying, no, we're here for a reason. The world is is a wonderful place, a difficult place to be. And how can I be more engaged with it rather than less engaged? Uh, and, and so now, of course, there are numerous studies that show that this understanding is valid scientifically. You know, you have... The Royal College of Psychiatrists here in, in the United Kingdom has a special interest group uh, on uh, that, that is interested in spirituality, and it has thousands of psychiatrists as members who recognize the fact and who do all sorts of research into the fact that having spiritual beliefs helps your mental health, helps you in all sorts of ways. And, and then, of course, there's all the research about connecting with nature, how it helps uh, people's mental health and so on. Yeah. So that's that's the sort of area I've decided to focus on in terms of activism and getting involved and so on. Right, interesting. When you when you were explaining the threefold, I found I found the word threefold for them, threefoldness. I don't know if that word exists in English, but I, I think it can be understood um, of uh, bards, ovates, and druids. You were using terminology like magic and occult and ceremonial for the for the druid etc so a very occultist magical um, terminology that's the terminology we don't often hear um, when we speak about druidry how much does classical let's use the word classical occultism what whatever that means it's also a bit vague but how much a role, how big a role would classical occultism play in druidry or in the type of druidry that you represent? Yes, it's important to say type of druidry because, you know, there's the, jo the joke that, you know, if 
if you ask ten druids for an opinion, you'll get twelve answers. You know, uh, you know. So, so um, many different expressions. They must all be singing teachers because we have that in opera. We say that right, about singing, singing teaching, about teaching exactly, exactly, exactly. Oh, really? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, but um, one way to answer that question is to is to is is like this to say, I think in a way there are two primary positions in relation to spirituality that one can adopt and that you find both in Druidry. So one is the mystical position, and that mystical position is one where you surrender to the one, to the all, and your uh, whatever you do in your spiritual practice is designed to open you to that sense of oneness, release, and so on. And then the, 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 the magical impulse or the magician is someone who is attempting to affect change in the world, to be creative in the world, to be a force for good in the world. And, and, yes. and I believe that you can, that both those parts of the self exist in each of us. And Druidry, this, in the way that the Order of Bards of Eights and Druids work, serves to cater to or to foster both aspects. So on the one hand, there are there are techniques and methods and so on to to to, to feed the magician to support the magician within, uh, uh, but also to support the mystic as well. Mm -hmm. So both parts play a role, and individually each member will pick the path that is more related to him or her, and 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 use use that part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. And I think they, they, there, there are, there are problems at both extremes. If you focus simply on magic, uh, th there can be a particular kind of problem that results from it, because it's very much related to will uh, and and focus. And if you foc if 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 you focus instead on the mystical side, there can be a danger of disengagement. Of, of lack of focus in a way. So so the, the two work very well together. Uh, to me, this is also one of the reasons why uh, esoterics, occult groups are needed and uh, why you cannot do everything in a solitary work because you need that group exactly to balance the different powers in yourself and to find out. And ritual is a very good, ritual is a very good, um, means to do that to find that balance again i see that with orders who have not been able to work for a year and a half now because of the pandemic and that they break sometimes a bit apart if they have not been looked after because those individualities have developed in different uh, into different extremes as you put it and now they have a hard time to bring that together again because for a year and a half the ritual or whatever you would use to keep the egregore alive has not taken place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 33 years as a leader of the order, as the chief of the order, and 33 years of building something that I would think has become part of yourself somehow and also of your heart, especially. Um, um, how hard was it after 33 years to to hand over leadership um, 
independently of the person, I don't mean the person. Uh, I'm sure you chose the right person, but how hard was it to to step back a little bit after that time? Well, um, I think it was 32 years. Maybe it was 33. I can't remember. Maybe in 32. But um, that's a detail. Um, but it no, it, it wasn't hard at all because um, at a certain point, you know, I think. Um, you mentioned that you work. You have worked in the opera. Uh, my wife Stephanie uh, worked at Glyndebourne Opera for twenty or so years. You know, right. and then and she and we compared notes, and she had a very similar feeling that you just have the sense of a cycle coming to an end. So when people say to her, "Oh, was it difficult to leave the opera house?" the answer she says, "No, it wasn't. It was the right time." So it was the same thing for me. I left. Um, I left, uh, I, I knew that a cycle was coming to an end and that I had to get out of the way. I think psychotherapy is a very good training. And Montes I trained in Montessori education as well to be a Montessori teacher. Oh. And both, both have a similarity in, is a strong part of them, teaches you about the power of getting out of the way. So when you're doing therapy with somebody, if you're too strong a person, if you project yourself too strongly, the therapy can't take place because the poor client doesn't have any room to blossom in front of you, as it were. And, um, you know, that's one of the tricks of doing a workshop, for instance. You know, if you do a workshop, you, you know, there's this concept of lighting the touch paper on a firework. You light the touch paper and then you step back. So you suggest an exercise or and the same thing in therapy, you know, you suggest an exercise or you suggest an idea and then you get out of the way. And if it works, kaboom, you have you have some result. Um, so I knew it was time to get out of the way. You know, the order had had grown. We'd we'd cr we'd built a really strong egregore and a really strong group sense. And and um, and then and then I prepared for. We kind of observed. We when we chose the person who would take over Ema, we we watched her for two years. I said to her after two years, I I hope this doesn't feel horrible, but we've been watching you for two years, uh, uh, just to make sure that we we had made the right choice. And then after two years, we invited her, and she, and she accepted. And then she and I spent two years where I, we had a handover, and that was a very important phase. Not just doing it suddenly. But handing over two years, I just just had lots of meetings with her and tried to tell her everything that I thought and felt and knew about running the group. And so when we when the handover occurred, and it unfortunately occurred in the pandemic, you know, it occurred we, we were going to have a big event at Glastonbury, but we couldn't. Um, it felt absolutely natural, and um, it, it's it's worked really well. I think I have to say, uh, it the good thing about that it happened during the pandemic was that many people like myself were able to see it online that handover, uh, and um, it was a very a very touching and very moving uh, moment. I must say, it, it felt very. It felt very right, uh, hard to express it. Uh, not being a member of of the order, but it's it it just felt right. It was very nice. Oh well, that's very good to hear. And 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 we felt afterwards that in a way it was almost better to do it where anybody in the world could experience it, rather than just a small group of people who had travelled to Glastonbury. You know, absolutely, absolutely. 
One last question about Druidry, and then we move on a little bit further into uh, psychology, maybe, and your your other your other things. Um, uh, did you also think, do you think that, and still is, that the time for Druidry is here at the moment? The same, a little bit the same experience that you made you, uh, was made by John Michael Greer, who I'm sure you know, uh, in the US with his uh, Druidic order, where he also picked it up at some point, a bit later than you, I think, uh, having a maybe 10 or 15 members. And he also was able to build it into what it is today. Um, so do you think time for druidry has come back or have you invented druidry in a new way that made it um, acceptable to the 21st or 20th century? Ooh, you know, I, um, I well, I, I you, the, ironically, there are probably more druids today in the 21st century than at any other time in human history. Uh, <laughs> you know, True, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, and and you know i've always i've always struggled with the term because as soon as you create a term it sort of seems to limit it in some way uh and 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 yet and and yet somehow it expresses uh the 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 quality of of this particular stream of spiritual teaching if you like um it it, it is of course at one level it is a very modern phenomenon because we can't know what the ancient druids practiced. We have the kind of the inspiration, and we have we have various strands of inspiration and folklore and and and, and so on. But but we have at some level reinvented it uh, for the modern era. Um, but that doesn't invalidate it, you know. And 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 I think people very much need. I think the times need a spirituality that is infused with a, a love particularly of trees because you know druid just means a lover of trees really it's a drew which is yes. you know you know a forest sage or a knower of the woods or you know and and i'm it feels absolutely right that at this very dire time in human history a spirituality that is so focused around the love of trees and a, a kind of veneration of trees, really, um, without whom we wouldn't exist, um, feels really significant and important. Uh, I also I, I share that opinion that things are right in the right moment, and they also can adapt to a certain point without leaving their roots and the traditions. Um, tradition doesn't mean not to change. Tradition means to respect what was before, doesn't it? Right, right. Yeah. When I hear you talk about druidry and about all the things we talked uh, so far, um, it becomes, of course, very obvious that you have that training in psychology, psychotherapy. You often have, give reference to that. Um, in what way um, those two lives of you have interacted? So how has your spiritual work in general influence the way you approach your profession as a psychologist, as a psychotherapist, and vice versa? How do those two interact with each other? Yes. Well, I think, you know, part of the <clears throat> injunction of the mystery schools, you know, the famous sign above above the entrance to Delphi, you know, know thyself, um, that that whole element of, of in, in spiritual training 
and development of of getting to know the self i think you know psychology provides tools for doing that that are a real contribution to the development of humanity and uh, it's very easy to get sidetracked or deluded in spiritual training you know when i i, I followed a guru for 7 years and and i i learned through personal experience how distortions can arise uh in 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 spiritual training and so the sort of tools of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy are extremely helpful to keep one on track in that sense um and then you know i trained in in psychosynthesis in the end uh which is a, a spiritual psychology a transpersonal psychology uh which brings in an understanding of the human as a spiritual being and so for me psychotherapy always includes that dimension um and so so spirituality has informed the the the, the way i work as a psychotherapist and and vice versa so so what what i did for instance if you take say the druid animal oracle or the druid plant oracle which are two oracles that i with my partner stephanie put together um you know i could go through that with you and show you the the influence of psychology and psychosynthesis and yet it's completely embedded in folklore and tradition and all the rest of it so 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 i think it's really really is possible to combine the two and then just in the last year since since um retiring as 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 chief of the order i've been working uh with colleagues on delivering a program for people dealing with uh depression working with the trees the the celtic tree uh calendar and uh meditation and teachings that the trees can give us to help people with this very severe problem of depression so the two right. the two have come together in that sense um maybe we should if you want to briefly speak about sophrology because that's something that you're practicing in your as a psychologist but sophrology is of course at least has how i understand it one of those techniques or those you give it a better name the technique maybe um which very much integrates spirituality and and psychology and if i read a little bit of background about sophrology it's it even gives terms like the magical conscience the mythical conscience and then the integrative consciousness um so that all sounds almost hermetic to me as a, as a, as a step ladder right um am i wrong or is that is that part of what you just said no no that, that that's right i mean i became sophrology because i interested in sophrology because i wanted to incorporate more use of the body in the work that i was doing in individual psychotherapy and then in running groups and workshops and so on and retreats and um it was a system developed by a, a uh, neuropsychiatrist about 60 years ago now um that has become very popular in the french speaking world and it incorporates kind of elements of that many people would recognize from mindfulness working with consciousness right. but also working with with movement physical movement and breathing and visualization and so on so it's 
uh, it's very specific and uh, is designed both to work with specific problems like anxiety uh, and so on and phobias and so on, um, but also in a general sense as a kind of cultivation of consciousness and of the, the, the whole self. Right, and it kind of works back from the experience to the body, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Speaking about which, um, I have to bring you back for two minutes, if I may, into your time with the guru. <laughs> um, because I see that your fir very first publication was called, I hope I pronounced that properly in English, uh, Panurismic, right? Panurismy. Uh, um, yes, you laugh, I assure. Uh, um, Eurythmics, of course, is something that we also all know through Rudolf Steiner and Anthroposophy. Um, and when what I know, I know very little about panurism. It's also a bit related to that to that experience. Um, so, was the combination of the body and the spirit? You just mentioned that with in connection with sophrology and that very early work of you. Was that always a a concern or a, well not a concern but the positive aspect of of the way you see life and spirituality and the world uh, that's 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 interesting yes yes I, sub, I i suppose so because yes in in way back uh when i when i began to follow uh mikhail ivanov he had inherited this teaching from his teacher peter dunov in in bulgaria in sofia and uh peter dunov had developed this uh dance called panurismy it's it's not really like steiner's eurythmy at all um and uh, but it's it's a it's a dance that you undertake as a group in a big circle, and you can go online and see circles of people dancing in the mountains in Bulgaria and so on. And um, okay. and uh, w you know we we learnt it. We came in 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 touch with this group in Bulgaria after uh, we became disillusioned with our guru. We we sort of went back to the source, and then for fourteen years. Uh, I would travel to Bulgaria every year and, and meet with this group of people and we would dance the panurismy in the forest in Sofia, even under the communist regime. And, uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so physical m movement has always felt important, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's change for, because we're now coming towards the end of our talk, I'm afraid, but let's just talk briefly about something completely different i i happened to discover that uh, i don't, uh, by just by googling you as i always do is when i when i have an interview to prepare and i came across something that i didn't expect at all which was an opera tarot so and um, philip cargom has published an opera tarot i think three years ago or so um so you have to tell me, of course, but I hope also some of my audience here, what is an opera tarot? Aha. Okay. Well, opera has, has been a theme, a long interest in my life. And um, and when I was, you know, way back in my 20s, when I came across the magic flute and, you know, appreciated the spiritual resonances, you know, all the, the magic in there, you know, uh, the Masonic influences and so on. And um, 
And then uh, when when I got together with my second wife, Stephanie, uh, she was working in the in the opera. Uh, and uh, so and so we got free free tickets to every uh, every production. And Glyndebourne is, you know, world class opera out in the countryside with a little uh, specific detail, which is there's a two hour break halfway through the opera where you go into the most beautiful grounds and have picnics in the, by the lake and so on. So it's very wonderful. Famous hampers. That, that's right. Absolutely. You know, often it would be raining, so, so it wouldn't be that fun, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but so, you know, I, I got to see lots and lots of opera and, uh, became, I became very interested in Michael Tippett's, uh, Midsummer Marriage. And I wrote a, piece about that because that has a whole, whole kind of ta oh, really? tantric and al alchemical theme in it and so on and yeah. and and um i wrote i was invited to write an introduction to a um, tarot of the birds which was a tarot deck specifically dealing with birds and and so when i was writing the introduction i thought of course of how you know opera you know the alchemical associations with that the you know the great work and so on looking at the comparisons and of course the fact that the birth of opera and the birth of um, the tarot emerged at the same time in italy and you know whenever it was the 12th 11th century or whatever um became fascinating to me. So I, I wrote a brief forward to this about song and about the idea of bird song and opera and spiritual ideas and so on. And and I was contacted by an artist who's who sent me an email saying, I've I've read your forward to this tarot deck and I have I am an opera fanatic and I have um painted the major arcana uh, and I would like to come and show them to you. And so she drove up to our house and we had a lovely evening where she produced, you know, uh, all these paintings. And, and uh, she said, I would like you to write the book that goes with my cards. And uh, so that's how, how the Opera Tarot came out. And, and, and so it's a very deluxe uh, edition uh, that she funded herself, a very expensive edition. Um, yeah. You know, it has... It has pink, pink gold, wow. and yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, so on. Wow. It's just a it's a beautiful wow. collection. Um, it's a small book, a little book that I've that I've written to go with it. But I enjoyed very much thinking up some exercises that linked music, song, and your inner feelings and potential. <clears throat> The, the sort of thing that tarot does. Oh, how very interesting. They work very well together. And the, the idea that you take little scenes from operas as as depictions of, of life on at full volume, as it were. And opera is often very, very archaic, very down, well, Jungian archetypes almost, right? Uh, it, yeah, it works very well. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Mm, Fascinating. Um, well, Philip... Um, uh, one final question I have to ask you before I let you go. 33, 32 years have come to an end. You, of course, continue your work in the way you did before. But um, are there any new projects, anything that's now in your life that is, of course, part of, of that spiritual uh, world we were talking about here today, which you would like to share with us or things we might be looking forward to in the near future? Do you know, um, my weakness, the hardest thing for me is to keep the final, you know, the magical injunction to know, to will, to dare and to be silent. Yeah. 
That to be sad, it's the hardest thing for me to do because I love speaking, I love sharing, but I know that I must I must be silent about this. But there are some things that I'm cooking quietly. Accepted, accepted. Silence is accepted, especially on the esoteric and hermetic podcast as it is. <laughs> well, Philip, this was a really, really nice 65 minutes in your company. Uh, really enjoyed that. It was uh, it was worth for the hundredth episode of this show. And um, thank you so much for being with us here today. And well, good luck with all those projects projects we don't talk about them and um, thanks so much and uh, well all the best for you thank you Rudolf thank you so much for, for inviting me on the show
shall have our bread. Oh, we're command, oh, we're command. Like a mighty God, you stand. You are guardian of our land. Take our prayers, oh, we're command. Oh, we're command, oh, we're command. Like a mighty God, you stand. You are guardian of our land. Take our prayers, oh, we're command. Oh, we're command. Okay, now I'm back. We just heard the third song by Damn the Bard. Damn the Bard sang for us from his CD Sabbath, The Wicker Man, and that was a release that has been done about um, four or five years ago. In the middle of the interview, just to remind you, it was Under the Tree, a single that Dan has just released. And once again, thanks to him for giving us this music for today's show. And of course, a big, big thank you to Philip Cargom, who was so lovely during the interview. I think you could see how much we enjoyed each other. And I also posted the picture as a release photo on Facebook and Twitter this time, which really showed the fun we had when we did that interview. Well, this was a very special episode, episode number 100. Thanks for joining us. And I am curious to see how many of you will have gone to YouTube to listen there or to watch that video there. I wonder if the number on YouTube will increase through that. How many of you are really interested in seeing video? In any case, the next episode and the following ones, they go back again to audio. There will be a little exception when I do this very special episodes for our patrons. They get now about every four to six weeks that trio episode, you know, when I ask a co-host who has been a former guest of mine on this show to co-host with me uh, a special episode, an interview with a guest that who we invite together. And there the patrons can join us live and on video, but it's a live video. It's not, it's not a recorded video in that case. But um, then next week we'll go back just to ordinary episodes like you're used to them and I will have finally Oriel 
defenestrate bascule with me Oriel. I had already planned to do that a few weeks ago then we had technical problems then there were health problems coming up and well finally we were able to do that interview and I'm sure you're gonna enjoy that he's a very special guy a very interesting artist multifaceted deep occultist um, highly interesting join Oriel with me next week that will be October 24 for the time being well, stay safe, stay healthy, very important those days especially, but all the time. And for the moment, what can I say? Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. <laughs>